Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. On this podcast, we've often explored ideas of liberalism from the American founding and its principles to the future of the think tank. Go listen to those episodes. Today, on January 25th, 2023, I wanted to explore further this idea of liberalism and what it has, what it holds in store, what what its future will look like with Robert Trusinski. Um, He's the author of Symposium, which is a substack and podcast about liberalism. He's the author of several books. And he writes his own subsect called The Trasinski Letter. He's also a columnist at Discourse Magazine. He's got a lot going on. Uh, we're going to look at questions like, <laughs> what is liberalism and what are the threats to liberalism today? So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So I guess here's some further ado. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Ah, that's a good question. That's a really interesting question. Well, now, um, I, I'm not going to say I'm going to have the, the finger on the pulse of America's youth. But the big thing that I observe about young people is that above all else, the global warming claims have gotten them in this sort of dystopian, apocalyptic outlook that, oh, my God, the whole world's messed up. Everything's, you know, we, we're, we're all doomed. There's this tremendous pessimism. And I think that has a lot of interesting knock on effects. So, or, or, you know, it's not just global warming. It's also things like I hear people say, oh, well, you know, everything's been ruined. College is too expensive. We can't afford a house. You know, your generation had it so much better. My generation did not actually have it that much better. If you look at the numbers, I mean, things are actually improving. Uh, and, and in the not just, you know, from my I'm a Gen Xer, just not just from my gener, you know, from the 1980s or 1990s to today, but also in the larger scheme of things, you know, the, the whole history of the last 200 years is this, this a tremendous explosion of wealth and opportunity, uh, you know, radiating out, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, radiating out across the world, uh, going down to the common man, especially in the most developed societies, that people have tremendous opportunities today that, 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 you know, previous generations could not have dreamed of. And so this, this sort of pessimism is incredibly misplaced, but it also has these knock-on effects. Uh, and the main one I see is, um, there's been a couple discussions recently, just in the last really f- month or two, uh, talking about how uh, you know, the great this idea there's a great stagnation that we're not innovating as much as we used to, and part of the source of that, one of the reasons people are talking about that, is this dystopianism, this pessimism that it makes people think. Well, you know, we can only talk about energy innovation, for example, in the context of well, how can we? You know, get rid of our existing power supplies, replace them with with renewable ones. How can we reduce our power use? How can we become more efficient? And not, you know, how can we dramatically increase the amount of energy we're using? So, you know, Jay Storrs Hall had a book out recently called Where's My Flying Car? And he has what's called the Henry Adams Curve. And it's this idea that, 
you know, since the Industrial Revolution, the amount of energy use per capita has been increasing geometrically until about 1970 when it kind of levels off. They're saying, well, what would be possible if we went back onto that geometric curve and we're using, you know, 10 times more energy than we were 50 years ago? What would that look like? What would we be able to do? And I think that sense of possibility of endless growth, of innovation, of we should be out building an amazing future. That's what's been lost in all of this sort of apocalyptic um, hysteria that, that, you know, it's not your, it's not the fault of young people. You've been raised with that. And it's people my age who've been shouting it at you for, for most of your lives. But I, I think that just so distorts the outlook that people have in terms of just what is even possible in life. It's also, I mean, you see this a ton in the realm of like politics and political thinking, but necessarily kind of overreaches into other parts of your life. And I just can't see how it's possible to really live a life where you're not optimistic and striving for the best um, and instead focusing on the negative. And I mean, my anyone who was around me when I was growing up will laugh because I used to be the glass half empty kid. But it just really, I, it's, like, there are so many greater points I could make, but to an extent, it just really baffles me that people feel so, so almost useless, in a sense, in mm -hmm. their own lives. I don't know if that's the right way to put that, but that's kind of what it seems yeah, like I to me. You know, I I, I think I, I, I noticed this because I'm a child of the 80s, and the 80s was... The most optimistic era I can think, one of the most optimistic eras I can think of. Really. So I guess the 80s and the 90s too, if you count, you know, the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's this tremendous, you know, liberation. Uh, uh, and, you know, I grew up with the, the fear that we we're all going to die in a nuclear apocalypse tomorrow. Uh, and it, it literally, you know, was not, it was not a hysteria. It could have literally could have happened at any moment. And then suddenly, poof, our big rival, the Soviet Union, sort of, you know, like a puffball suddenly disappears one day. And there was this tremendous sense of, of opportunity of just the whole world being open that I think is, is somewhat lost. And it, it does have this, this weird effect, you know, that people agonize over whether they, whether they should bring kill children into this horrible, terrible horrible world and and deny themselves one of the one of the greatest adventures you can go through in life um uh of 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 raising children and um you know it's also the sense that uh i think there's been a great diversion into politics of people's efforts and energy and concerns people are are just obsessed more people are obsessed with politics and people have observed that politics has taken the place of religion as a source of meaning and a source of identity as something you identify with i'm on the left i'm on the right uh, this sort of source of tribal identity and it's it's taken up so much bandwidth that ought to be going into art and um uh, and 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 innovation, and you know, we have to be glued to the pages of the, of, of the of the newspaper, looking at what the latest uh, technological innovations are. And instead, you know, we're focused on the way to improve the world is through politics, and it's actually one of the least effective ways to improve the world. And, and by the way, I want to mention this is not just you know kids on the left that I'm talking about here. It's also something that has 
really the, the, the apocalyptic approach and also the substitution of politics as a source of meaning has also taken over very much on the right. I view the sort of the Trump era less as a cause of this and as a symptom of it. Uh, that, you know, people on the right have, you know, the sort of the traditionalist types are basically saying, well, look, your know, religion's in decline. And so therefore, all of our culture is coming crashing down. The woke people are taking over. We're almost in a, we are literally in a totalitarian dictatorship. And it's an absurdity. We are not anywhere close to being in a totalitarian dictatorship. We are not anywhere close to having our ability to, you know, make a living and, and, and succeed in life cut off. Uh, but that that apocalypticism came into the right as well and has distorted that politics uh, and and makes it seem like you know fighting the culture war and backing whoever the the political champion is of the culture war right now and being mad about the culture war is the most important thing you can do to to make the world better and in fact you know going out and building new things and creating things and inventing things and and living your life to the fullest is the best and most effective thing you can do to make the world better. It's funny that you mentioned that politics is now like become this giant central part of people's lives, because to me, that's like the opposite of liberalism and how I view liberalism. So let's go over some definitions. What is your definition of yeah. liberalism? Right, liberalism is advocacy of a free society. I mean, that's it comes from, it comes from the Latin word literally. Latin word for freedom. So it's the idea, in my view, in, in my view, the central idea of liberalism is that freedom should be the a central or the central value of a of a good, proper, you know, prosperous uh, or or um, ideal society. That you know we should organize our our culture and especially our politics around the idea of freedom. Now. Liberalism, of course, is a term that has taken on this wider meaning. I'm using it in the political philosopher's sense, right? Not in the uh, partisan political sense. In the partisan political sense, it became identified in the 20th century with, you know, the welfare state and uh, with with the sort of the left, although with the more old fashioned left, right? So when I was a kid, the you know, and the, the battle lines have changed on this. The the definitions have changed. When I was a kid, a liberal was like. You know, think George Carlin or something like that. There was somebody who was sort of pro-welfare state, uh, wanted a, a, a large government role in, in regulating industry, but was you know very pro-free speech, pro-individual liberty. And of course, that's a kind of an old-fashioned thing now because that that doesn't describe really today's left. It certainly doesn't describe the woke left, which has become much more about you know let's let's have much more control over what people say and you can't say this and you can't say that and uh, as as my friend Lou Perez says that joke isn't funny anymore and and uh uh it's much more about you know you have to control the individual the the old fashioned left liberal was someone who believed in individual freedom as an essential goal just not in economics right and then the classical liberal is which is where I stand is the the person who uh, you know this is the sort of the nineteenth century definition of what a liberal is, which is believing in freedom across the board, believing that individual rights is the foundation of a proper society, and that that should apply to our economic lives and to you know, our speech, to our personal lives, to our personal decisions. So sort of you know John Locke to John Stuart Mill that version of liberalism. 
And the uh, the biggest thing that I'm campaigning about, and this is the reason why I started Symposium, is I think this concept of what is liberalism got caught up in the sort of fake divisions of the so-called left-right divide in American politics, right? So you had, well, you're either left or right. And then what was left and what's right sort of evolve over time to have nothing to do with liberalism or anti-liberalism. There are people who I would describe as being essentially liberal who are on the center left and on the center right. There are people I'd describe as being extremely illiberal who are on the left and the right. And so thinking of things in terms of left and right has always sort of obscured this more than it enlightened. And it does so especially now when the fundamental issue of liberalism versus illiberalism really you know, cuts across that left-right divide. And we're going to get into that illiberalism and all of that. But what, so you mentioned that freedom and free society is the primary focus of liberalism, but are there any other principles or features that are necessary for the basis of American liberalism and a liberal society? Well, yeah, yeah, I think there are definitely some things that are, I would say they're implicit in the concept of freedom or liberty, but they need to be pulled out explicitly because if you don't have those, you you can, you will go off the rails. So one of those, I would say, is individualism, right? That uh, freedom is individual freedom, that ultimately the person who is being who is free, the entity that is being free is always the individual. It's preventing the individual from, you know, so the, 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 where, where sort of the left liberalism of, of, of wokeness goes off the rails is in defining people in terms of groups, right? And so, you know, uh, your the politics should look at you as a member of, you know, you're white or you're black, you're, uh, uh, you're straight or you're, you're uh, queer, you're, uh, uh, you know, all these different sort of tribal dividing lines, racial, class, gender, et cetera, that we have dividing people. And then your your rights or your interests as a group should be considered. Whereas, you know, in, in the concept of freedom is, is, is I think is inherent in it is the idea that, you know, you could be oppressed by uh, uh, that, 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 that Freedom is the autonomy of the individual, your ability as an individual to make your own choices about what you want in life, how you're going to go about to do it uh, without and, and not simply your membership in a group and your interests as a member of a group, because you are different from the other people of that group. You are not just you know, an interchangeable cog in some collective. And when you treat people like an interchangeable cog in some collective, then you end up downgrading that individual freedom and basically, you know, substituting, you know, the, the tyranny of one group for the tyranny of another. Um, the second thing that I would say is, is, is an inherent on this also is a regard for reason and persuasion. You know, by reason, I mean, you know, the, the use of arguments of logic of evidence to to settle our differences and to resolve disputes and that implies you know the need that people the fact that people need to be left free to balance the evidence to weigh the arguments to to make the arguments to make including unpopular arguments and then the you know the the freedom to to consider that in their own mind without some outer uh, some other kind of coercion or um uh, other consideration being made more important than what do you think of the evidence? What do you think of the of the of the reasoning? 
And, and that's something I think is a huge cultural value. Because we talk about freedom of speech. We can talk about what's protected by the First Amendment, what's not protected by the First Amendment. But beyond that, I think there is legitimately something. There's a culture of free speech, which is a general attitude that Yes, a diversity of opinions and views is desirable that people should not be, you know, browbeaten and intimidated even by social pressure. Much, you know, forget government pressure, even social pressure should not, you know, within certain limits should not browbeat and intimidate people into not raising uncomfortable questions or unpopular ideas. So we need to have that as a cultural value, that regard for reason, discussion, persuasion. So what would you define as the biggest threat to liberal society today? And how do these threats compare to threats of the past? So like on university campuses, there's the threat that uh, like about speech codes where there were the the administrators were basically just like imposing all these speech codes. And then you have now students who are demanding censorship, yeah. trigger warnings, stuff like that. Yes, you've been talking to David French, I can <laughs> tell, or at least reading him, because yeah, that's one thing he talks about, about how he spent you know, his early years as, as a free speech litigator going against you know, literal speech codes where the campus administrators would say, you can say this, you can't say that. And you know, basically litigating that in courts and saying, no, you can't impose this on the students, especially at public schools. And then he, what he discovered basically is we thought, okay, we get rid of the administrators imposing this and everything will be fine. And then the students come along and impose this on their peers through social pressure and through, you know, demanding people be fired, et cetera. Um, I mean, there's a case recently, a college in, in Minnesota, I think, where, uh, a, an art history teacher showed, you know, real, paintings from the past, images of real paintings from the past, uh, paintings created by Muslims showing Muhammad and a Muslim student complained saying, oh, this is Islamophobia because certain versions of, of, of Islam, you know, have prohibitions against depicting Muhammad. Now, you know, this is, she's presenting the actual facts of art history. She's presenting Muslim artists who depicted Muhammad who didn't subscribe to this, but the, the university administration immediately sort of caved in now they sort of tried to cave back and there's this whole litigation going on it. But this is the sort of thing where the, you know, the, the, the social pressure from the students themselves has sort of, uh, replaced the authority figures from the top down coming after people. And it's the authority figures who are actually caving into pressure from the students to do this, or at least from one student in this case. All right. So. I, I do think that's a huge threat, but I think I'm going to be a little contrarian here. And I think the, I, I, the biggest issue is the biggest threat to to liberalism is people accepting this left right dichotomy, <laughs> because you'll also see that there's this new thing in Florida, I think it is, where um, a new one, there's been a series of laws passed on the state level by conservatives saying, you know, controlling what can what books can be in student libraries at the the schools and what can be taught at the schools and you know you can teach this and you can't teach that and then going into the universities and saying we're going to get rid of critical race theory and you can't promote critical race theory and there's been this sort of conservative cancel culture that they've been adopting by saying okay you know Ron DeSantis is going to go in and tell you what you can teach and what you can't teach and uh what you can say uh and what you can't say in the schools 
And so I see a lot of people who have been so programmed by, you know, 30 years of political correctness, a lot of people my age, right, who grew up with political correctness, was what we called it in the 1990s, back before it became wokeness. They've been so programmed with that's the threat and those are the people who want to control our speech that they they don't want to see a similar threat coming from the right and from the sort of nationalist, the, the the very illiberal nationalist right that's coming up, that's basically saying, well, we're going to control speech just in favor of our preferred speech. And so I think the, the biggest problem is that people have to get that left-right dichotomy out of their mind and think not in terms of left or right, but in terms of, well, Ronald Reagan. So the famous speech, the speech that made Ronald Reagan nationally famous this is 1964, the, the time for choosing speech. That was, they called it a time for choosing. Uh, it's sort of what launched him onto the national, onto the national scene. Uh, he was endorsing, uh, Goldwater, but he made a great point. He says, yeah, there is no left or right. There's just an up or down up to the maximum amount of freedom that's compatible with the rule of law and down to totalitarianism, right? Down to illiberalism, down to the lack of freedom. And I think we need to really reorient our brains in that direction to say, okay, let's think, not think left or right. Let's think up or down. Let's think liberal or illiberal. That actually, it's a striking response, but it makes a lot of sense because what a lot of people refer to as tribalism is really just this reliance on an institution that is not one of those fundamental to a liberal society, like church. Instead of church, it's politics or something. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that, like, it really is this this acceptance of the dichotomy. You're right. It's one of those ideas that's kind of like a, a it's like a full, you know, it was an Archimedes who said, uh, give me a lever and a place to stand that I can move the world. This is one of those mental levers where when you pull that lever and you start or or maybe like the duck versus bunny, you know, the, the optical illusion where when you suddenly you flip this mental switch, and you suddenly see things a different way. And suddenly the whole landscape looks different if you see it from this different perspective. And I'd like to say here, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but about a year ago, I had this, I I uh, predicted that what was going to happen to the political spectrum is that the extremes, like the liberal extremes were going to converge. And that's kind of what it looks like now. And that the center was going to become something new, regardless of what side of this spectrum. So kind of the prediction had to do with this dichotomy kind of dissolving. So I just want to lay that out there for the future to see if I'm right. Um, and I mean... Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I would say I've lived for decades, I have lived in terror that the left and the right would find how much they have in common and join forces. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's precedent for this. You know, that the, the um, uh, communists going over to the joint, you know, in, in Weimar Germany, the 1930s, communists going over to join the Nazis was such a, a common phenomenon. They actually, actually had an expression for it. Uh, they were called uh, beefsteak Nazis, uh, brown on the outside, red on the inside. You know, they're brown shirts on the outside, but they were still red. They were still communists underneath. Um, so uh, so the, this idea that 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 the, the people would go back and forth from the communists to the fascists. You think, oh, but they're opposites, but they're really not. And so there's, you know, there's a, I've, I've been in terror that those, these, those groups would, you know, instead of fighting each other all the time, would actually realize how much they have in common and find some way to synthesize and join forces. But I think, you know, in answer to, I think they are to some extent doing that now. And I think the answer, especially the nationalist conservatives, you know, they, they actually take a lot of ideas from, from the left and from, you know, from the illiberal portions of the left. 
So I think that in response, the people, those of us who are liberal in our disposition, we have to maybe, you know, downgrade or, or find ways to work with each other across what have been our traditional divisions and people who would normally have argued with each other over the welfare state have to find ways to, you know, not necessarily give up those arguments, but, but find alliances and find ways to reach out to each other in order to form our own synthesis, our own alliance, I call it neoclassical liberalism. You know, take neoliberalism and classical liberalism, find find a way for them to work together, call it neoclassical liberalism. Uh, and I, I don't think it's the center. I don't I think that thinking of ourselves as the center is part of the problem, right? Because the, mm-hmm. what's the center in between? Well, it's between the stream, the extremes. And so you often see people who are on, who are moderates, quote unquote, moderates on the left on, on or de- moderate Democrats. And when they think of themselves, they think of themselves as, well, I'm just a watered down or less extreme version of, you know, the far left. Or if you're a moderate Republican, you're a watered down, less extreme version of, you know, the far out nationalist right, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or whoever you want to put there. Um, so you, it's the same problem that you think of yourself as just a watered down version of illiberalism. Well, instead of I think we need to define ourselves not as moderates or not as the center, but as we're the, we're the people who are, who are up in, in Reagan's scheme. We're the people who want to go up to freedom as opposed to the ones that want to go down towards the liberals. It's a nice, like, it's good that he, it's in a speech somewhere. Like we can go read it, quote <laughs> it. It exists. Um, and we can just recycle this idea. Um, well, you know, in, in politics, you know, as, as a rhetorical matter, in politics, you know, there are certain people who have had these huge impacts that that have this residual element of goodwill. And so, often talking with anybody who's on on the right, and I mentioned, you know, Saint Ronald of Reagan. I mean, mm-hmm. he has, and I, you know, because I grew, like I said, I'm a child of the '80s. It was a great era to grow up in. He had this tremendous, you know, optimistic sense of life um, that he that he conveyed. And he, you know, his policies led to, you know, a lot of great results, a, a booming economy, a uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, this tremendous sense of optimism. So it's really good to be able to go back and say, look, you know, we had this once. <laughs> we had a leader who believed these things once and look what the results were. And maybe we could try that again. Yeah. Um, well, so I don't think it's a question of obviously we've kind of talked about this at length at this point, that the attacks on liberalism are coming from quote unquote, both sides. They're basically coming from down, from illiberal. Um, To put an example to this, when Donald Trump was running for office and threatening to rewrite libel laws to go after New York Times and Washington Post for writing things about him. And I remember thinking that that was crazy. And, you know, it's less crazy every day. Um, It's more possible (laughs) every day. So I guess... Can you tell us what the differences are between the two types of liberalism? Because I do think there are still some characteristics that they have that are distinctly different from one another. All right. So this is something I've been, te- I've been teaching my kids, um, which is, you know, I ask them, the most, one of the most important things you have to understand is what is the difference between communism and fascism? And they know the answer, the correct answer that I want now, which is the difference between communism and fascism is the shape of the mustache of the guy who kills you. <laughs> Uh, that's, but you know, the big bushy mustache, it's a communist. If it's a little tiny skinny mustache, it's a, it's a fascist, but, uh, there are stylistic differences and, and, and historical differences and sort of cultural differences between the liberal left 
and and the liberal right. And I would describe it, but I fundamentally I think it's it's ideological, which is uh it's that the uh the right believes that basically that society should be organized around well they say around God or around religion, but they really mean is by tradition there a, a certain traditionalist understanding of that. So everything should be organized around tradition. And uh the left says everything should be organized around uh you know they put basically the, the old line on that is they put society in the place of God, but they also think everything should be organized around progress, you know, a version of society that's based on the idea of progress, which of course ends up being you know the the particular vision of project progress of a small sort of clique of college educated people on what they think is progress, right? So um but you know the, the the thing about it is even that seems unsatisfying because the more you tear at it, the more you look at it in fundamental terms, the more you see the similarities. So I would say the similarity is they both believe the individual has to be subordinated to society. But the you know and then the the, the differences within that are stylistic. So you know the the right says it should be or uh, the individual should be subordinated to the interests of interests and views of society and society means whatever was traditional when i was a kid right it's it's a very much of a pattern if you look at trump right he always everything was always better back in like 1973 whenever his heyday was whatever he thinks as the way the world the world was better everything should be like that again and you know if and religion is uh, the traditional outlook of things so everything we should have they should promote religion because that's the traditional uh, source of meaning and value and, and ideas and, and morality. And then the the left says that everything should be organized around the interests of society, but society has traditionally been awful. It's been oppressive. It's been, it's guilty of all these crimes and sins. So society needs to be fundamentally restructured. And so that's, I mean, that's the difference between them. But if they ever realize that, look, you know, the insubordination of the individual to society is our common premise and they could find more agreement on that, you know, we'd be in trouble. But I think that the idea that, you know, that the the fundamental interest, the interests of the individual are the fundamental starting point, that society just simply is a group of individuals. There's no such thing as the good of society in contrast to the good of individuals. And we focused on individual freedom and the 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 a a, a focus on individualism, we would get you know, beyond that. But, you know, so those, those differences are real between the left and the right, but they're stylistic. So, I mean, so first, this is a really good point because I spent my entire life growing up giving up on the idea of ever understanding the difference between communism and fascism because (laughs) I was convinced there was none and everyone around me was not convinced. And it it just feels pretty vindicating. (laughs) But uh, so I guess, So there are similarities and there are differences, but that doesn't really stop them, all these illiberal groups, from accusing each other of being authoritarian and kind of clashing heads about this. Like whether it's the right complaining about cancel culture and wokeism or the left complaining about Trump and this existential threat to liberalism, but they they seem to be – I don't know, fighting each other in weird ways as if they're not really serious about it. Do you think that they will continue to fight with each other and how? Well, I I think part of what goes on in our politics, too, is because things aren't defined in the most fundamental and illuminating terms. 
It's not defined in terms of freedom versus, you know, liberalism versus illiberalism, freedom versus authoritarianism. Because of that, people substitute and get caught up on a lot of superficial issues. And also, like I said, politics has replaced religion, so it's become a source of tribal identity. So there's a lot of political battles you see these days, and especially in the culture war, that can be understood not as this is an important issue that that really determines the course of, of, of society, but can be understood as this is a placeholder for the, for us declaring our tribal identities against each other. Right. And it's our, it's a, it's an excuse for us to line up and make everybody line up as you're on one side versus you're on the other and to draw those, those sort of tribal, uh, 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 battle lines. And so, for example, I mean, this latest one about gas cooking stoves, right? They're going to ban gas stoves. Now, this is briefly floated and then briefly abandoned. It's probably still out there. We're going to be, I'm sure we're going to be hearing about this for another, another 10 years. But the, it, it, I, I was amazed by the extent to which it immediately became part of the culture war. There was a gas stove culture war all of a sudden. And you had all these Republican politicians going out there and declaring they're, they can have my gas stove when they pry it from my, you know, I, I guess the cold dead fingers wouldn't work. It'd have to be uh, warm fried fingers. <laughs> um, but uh, or or and then you had a bunch of other people, you know, saying, you know, oh, induction stoves are, are you know are not are the new the the proper way to cook now. And if you have a gas stove, you're looked down upon because you're in the pocket of of big propane or something. Uh, but uh, uh, or even like COVID, COVID is a great example of how immediately something that is a matter of science and epidemiology became swept up into, oh, there's a COVID culture war. And, you know, either, and and people got very, um, how would I put it, almost uh, uh, Victorian about how you have to take certain precautions, you have to wear masks and things like that. On the one side and on the other side, oh, I'm not going to take any precautions at all because they, I'm not going to let them tell me what to do. And people took a, 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 not just a scientific issue, but one that with immediate, you know, concrete life and death importance and they just immediately automatically um subsumed that into the culture war and it became an excuse for me to say to state my tribal allegiance and you know to to assert that against your tribal allegiance and for us you know to to have that kind of signifier so that the 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 empty culture war battle as tribal signifier is i think one of the signatures of of the current era it's it's always gone on to some extent none of this is really a hundred percent new but i think what's new is the extent to which you know the the bread and butter issues the, the kit what we used to call the kitchen table issues are less prominent in our politics or to the extent they get mentioned they tend to be sort of wrapped up into the culture war now there are a couple exceptions to this that i find intriguing and one of them for example is the yimby movement right so this is the idea that you know uh people suddenly realize that wait a minute all these, you know, the reason why reason why young people can't afford a house if they're trying to buy it, especially in a big city, is because of all these restrictions and environmental restrictions and community input restrictions that are preventing anybody from building anything. So you should go. We should be out there saying, yes, people can build new apartment buildings. People can build new houses, and it's a weird thing because it's like a, a crusade against excessive regulation, whose the people primarily doing it are people on on the center left. So, uh, so it's something that goes across. It's one of these things I'm looking for are, that are things that go cut across the usual partisan lines 
And also that instead of being around a fake culture war issue that probably has no very little impact on most people are actually about something substantive that would really make a difference. So I think we have a way out. We're seeing sort of dribbles of it, you know, permitting reform and, and YIMBY, YIMBY versus NIMBY, you know, yes in my backyard versus no in my, not in my backyard. I think we're seeing some dribbles of how to get out of that. You had a fascinating article over at Discourse Magazine called The Marriage of Liberalism and Democracy, where you explain that freedom mm-hmm. and democracy sometimes seem to conflict, but that one can't survive without the other. Can you quickly make that case for us? All right. So I, I'm one of the I'm so I'm, I'm a reformed. Uh, we're not a repub- we're not a democracy. We're, we're a republic guy, you know, who used to like not like the mm-hmm. and it wasn't so much the, the phenomenon of democracy in the sense of voting and representative government. It was the word. And. Because there is a, you know, where democracy goes wrong. The, the analogy I use here is, you know, the, the democracy goes wrong is the death of Socrates, right? So you had this Athenian jury. And the juries in, in Athens were not just 12 people. There were like 500 people there. There were like many legislatures convened to rule in a certain case. So this is the, the one of the hearts of, of Athenian democracy was this jury. And they voted to put Socrates to death, to execute him for basically for asking uncomfortable questions and raising all sorts of philosophical questions about things that they ought, thought ought to be uh, unquestioned truths. And that's an example of democracy gone wrong, right? You know, it's the, 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 a group of people voting to put a guy to death just for asking questions. It's, it's the, the democracy being used as mob rule, as, uh, the will of the people taking precedence over the rights of the individual. But I've softened on it because I've realized, well, two things. First of all, that, you know, the founding fathers, including the Jeffersonians, I think even Jefferson himself used the term democracy in a positive way. So they use it to refer to what, you know, a constitutionally limited republic. So they, if, if it's good enough for Jefferson, for Thomas Jefferson, it's good for me. The other part about it is that, um, uh, the other story I use is that democracy also has a history as a protection against dictatorship by putting power in the hands of the people you prevent it from going into an going to to an elite or to a to an aristocracy or to some small cabal and that is the real function of you know that's that's the real sort of marriage between liberalism and democracy between freedom and 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 voting or, or representative government is the idea that Inherent in representative government, inherent in us voting for our leaders is the idea that everyone has equal rights, that there's no one, you know, born with superior rights, no one born with superior ability to dictate to us how we ought to live. And so therefore, you know, the, the people ought to be consulted, that they, we ought to have, every one of us ought to have an equal say in, in how, uh, the government is administrated. And that ends up being giving a tremendous protection for uh for freedom uh against you know any any small group or faction that wants to to take away the freedom of the individual to do something they have to face uh, up against the possibility that you know the people have the ability to get them out of office to if if they overreach if they become too oppressive if they become too authoritarian uh, they they can be voted out of office. They could be, you know, new laws can be passed, new reforms can be passed uh, that come up from the people and not just down from a central authority. So I think there's a tremendous uh, uh, need for for voting for representative government for the institutions of democracy, a liberal democracy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the whole trick of liberal of liberal democracy is you both those words are important, right? You have to have 
that democracy is there to protect the people against a tyrant or a cabal or uh, a junta or you know some minority of people who want to seize power. But at the same time, the system has to be designed as our founders designed it to have protections for the rights of the major of, of minorities and the individual against the majority. So the way I put it is you have to be able to protect us from a tyrant the way democracy was originally meant to do in ancient Greece. But at the same time, you also have to protect the, the end of, you know, protect Socrates from the majority, from, from the majority vote. So you have to have the protections for the individual as well. And the whole trick is, you know, let's, let's find a, find a way to preserve and maintain that idea of liberal democracy. So finally, I want to talk about your optimism for the future, if it exists, if you have a plan. <laughs> And what we need to do, essentially, to fight against these illiberal means more than any specific side of the spectrum, the down, the illiberal, what do we do? Yeah. Well, I, I said my plan is, you know, specifically is to push on this idea I've been talking about, about the, how the left versus right, the traditional division there that's defined in non-essential terms needs to be replaced with up versus down, liberal versus illiberal. And that, you know, that sort of gestalt shift moment where you see things in that way and suddenly things look different. That's what I'm trying to push as a key sort of fulcrum to move people's minds and make a change here. I also think, though, what's been going on is that liberalism has suffered from a kind of philosophical or ideological neglect. That some of the key ideas and arguments that we've had over the centuries, people weren't paying enough attention to that. I think, you know, the, there's a culture war that was fought and lost in the 90s that uh, on sort of fought and lost by both sides um, that I think is interesting because back in the 1990s, you know, when we talked about political correctness on campus, or really in the 80s, this is the heyday of this, there was this idea that, you know, we need to preserve the great books education. We need to preserve the, you know, the, the focus on uh, the fundamental, the big ideas of Western civilization. And that was sort of the, if you were a conservative and you were fighting the culture war, your culture war was people need to be reading, you know, Plato and they need, they need to be reading, uh, uh, the great books, uh, and, and really have this, this base of knowledge and the ideas of Western civilization. And that's the war we have to fight. Well, that was sort of lost against political correctness and wokeness and the idea that, oh no, that's a whole bunch of dead white European males and they should be, we should decolonize them from our bookshelves and our curriculums and not pay attention to these big and important ideas. That's what happened on the left. But then in, in response to that, a lot of people on the right said, well, look, that culture word didn't work. So let's go to politics instead. Let's not talk about great big ideas and great books. Who cares about that? Let's talk about how we can, you know, all get behind the, the, you know, the latest populist demagogue and get as much political power for our side to use for what we don't really know. But, you know, th there's been this anti-intellectualism that's happened to both sides for their own different ideological reasons. And that's the big thing I'm fighting about is, you know, we should be back discussing these big ideas and these these big important questions and and dealing with them on an ideological and philosophical level. And, and that's the other sort of big thing that I'm, I'm fighting for. But I am optimistic, though, because, like I said, you know, the world is way better today than it has ever been in all of human history. Uh, one of the things I fight against, too, is the idea that of, of fighting for Western civilization. I think that term is becoming obsolete because so many of these ideas and so many of the practices, including representative government, freedom of speech, have spread so far beyond, you know, what we used to be called, the, quote unquote, the West. I mean, the, the biggest fights in for freedom have been in the last few years have been happening in like places like Hong Kong and Ukraine. 
you know, Ukraine far, far, far into Eastern Europe. Uh, Hong Kong is 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 not European. That's not Western at all. It's as far about as far east as you can go. That this whole sort of you know East versus West terminology is is obsolete, and it's because these ideas have have a universal value of meaning and have become universal and global. And so I think that's my source of optimism is that those ideas have spread, you know, education and those fundamental ideas have spread much farther and much deeper across the world than I think they ever have in any, any, any uh, era of human history before. I think, you know, we should, we should take, not take them for granted and, and focus on them and, and make them the center of our thinking about, about politics and about society. But I, th- I think we have this tremendous reserve to draw upon for that. Your optimism is contagious. I have one last question for you. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? We just talked about it, democracy. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I used to be very much, you know, that you know, we're, we're a republic. And I was never like, you know, in favor of dictatorship or anything like that. But I, I think the importance of Voting and, you know, the, the, it used to be the, you know, cause it, there's, there's a whole history of 20th century quote unquote liberalism, the, the 20th century version of left liberalism, which was very much in favor of the idea that, well, we are democracy. So therefore, you know, whatever, whatever the public wants, it should get right. Um, or that the, uh, H.L. Mencken's old line about how democracy is the notion that the common people know, the common person knows what he wants and deserves to get it good and hard. Um, but you know, whatever the people want, they should get, and, and the, the majority should rule and everything. And I'm reacting against that in favor of a pro freedom viewpoint sort of led me to downgrade the importance of voting and democratic institutions. And I think the, the events of the last, you know, five to six years, and especially, you know, the January 6th riot at the Capitol, that kind of clarifies it. And because, you know, democracy in that sense of of the basics of of voting and the fact that when somebody loses an, an election, he, he will voluntarily leave office and the peaceful transition of power, all those things sort of were easy to take for granted because they weren't really in question. They weren't really under immediate threat. And the moment they become under immediate threat, you get a much more visceral idea of, wait a minute, now I understand how much this matters and, and how precious this is to me. So that's one of the reasons why I sort of changed my, in response to those events, it sort of awakened me to the fact that, yes, you know, democracy in that sense of liberal democracy, that is more important. It is more vital. It is uh, more, um, uh, it should be given a, a higher level of priority than, than, I, than I had realized. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.